Ah, another week closer to the Christmas holidays. As the recovering Grinch, this time of year is one of the t- that brings special joy to my ever-growing heart. A big part of that change has been my newfound love for holiday movies. And today, I think Chris and I should go crazy and talk about the holiday movie soundtracks that we think are sublime. Today, on Two Dudes and Tunes. Tunes, the show where two dudes have been drinking eggnog from Moosehead Nog Glasses and bemoaning our Jelly of the Month Club membership. How's it going, Chris? Uh, it's going great. I gotta say, uh, you use the word sublime. That is a little highfalutin for <laughs> what is going on, especially some of the movies we're going to talk about today. Uh, they're good movies, don't get me wrong, but uh, sublime, I don't know about sublime. Okay. Okay. I'll give you that. Uh, well, welcome to the show, Chris. Uh, we're another week closer to Christmas and kind of to facilitate some small talk this week. I wanted to play a game with you. You, uh, you up for it? Let's do it. Let's play a game. All right. So I'm going to rapid fire name you off my 10 favorite holiday movies in order. So get your pencil ready. Uh, I'm going to name them out and then you're going to renumber them in your order of preference. So, number 10, A Charlie Brown Christmas. Number 9, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Number 8, White Christmas. Number 7, Home Alone. Number 6, The Muppet Christmas Carol. Number 5, Elf. Number 4, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, featuring Jim Carrey. Number 3, Klaus, the Netflix original. Number 2, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. And number 1, Die Hard. Go for it, Chris. Oh, you're one of the, okay. So you're one of those people. Well, I am about to disrespect you a little bit and your, uh, your choice of Die Hard as your number one. So those movies ranked by my enjoyment <laughs> from 10 to 1. Uh, slot number 10, I'm putting Klaus because I haven't seen it. That's Sorry. a crime against humanity. It's probably I one know. of the sweetest movies ever made. I, it, it looked familiar, but uh, I haven't seen it. Uh, and then number nine, I'm putting Die Hard in that slot because it's not a Christmas movie. There's Christmas music. It's a man going home to visit his family on <laughs> Christmas Eve. I don't know what you're talking that's, about. That's true. It's a Christmas uh, movie. Um, so Megan and I have an ongoing joke that Doubt is our favorite Christmas film. <laughs> that's super serious drama about Philip Seymour Hoffman coming under investigation uh, for possibly being inappropriate. Uh, he's a pre- Anyway, I'm not going to go into that. This is a family show. Uh, but it has about as much to do with Christmas as Die Hard does. Anyway. Um, that's, hey, that's this run DMC this. has a Christmas song on there and it's one of the greatest <laughs> Christmas songs ever made. So, uh, that's, that's fair. Uh, so above that at number eight, I'm going to put Rudolph the red nosed reindeer who doesn't love a good Rankin and bass Christmas special. Oh, yeah. Uh, number seven national lampoons Christmas vacation. I actually just discovered that I actually love this movie. Uh, it's, so it's just, great. 
it's it's a very recent discovery for me. Six, uh, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Jim Carrey is a national treasure. I love that film. Uh, number five, The Muppet Christmas Carol. I with most the top five, like I could not count how many times I've seen all these. Uh, so you could probably jumble the top five in any order, and it'd still work for me. Number four, Home Alone. Uh, number three, Elf. Uh, probably, um, probably his best role, Will Ferrell. Ooh, I, it's it's close. Because he manages to not be like creepy. He somehow he plays Buddy the Elf without any kind of like creepiness or like this guy is just a pervert. Like he's just like a dumb elf man child. And it's so funny. Okay. Um, we can argue two. about that on our movie podcast <laughs> down the line. Yeah, I know it. Uh, number two, a Charlie Brown Christmas. Another one that I have watch since time immemorial uh i love it and number one white christmas love me some bing crosby and danny k i'm not sure i totally agree with you but okay i think i think it's fair that's the joy of comparing each other's lists so with that said what is your top 10 favorite christmas movies and i'll reorder them so my list moving from 10 to one so from the bottom to the top my favorite christmas films at number 10 rankin and bass uh the little drummer boy i uh loved that one as a kid number nine jingle all the way starring the governator uh number eight and sinbad don't, don't cut out sinbad and sinbad <laughs> sinbad is sinbad is really what makes that movie if we're being honest um number eight the santa claus with uh tim the tool man taylor Yes. Uh, number seven, the made for TV 1984 film, a Christmas Carol starring George C. Scott, a national um, treasure, the movie if you and put the George man. C. Scott. And yeah, if you put him in anything, I will watch it. He's so good. Uh, number six, elf, uh, number five, home alone. Number four, a Charlie Brown Christmas. Uh, number three, the 1970 musical Scrooge starring Albert Finney. This is another one that I grew up watching every single year. Number two, It's a Wonderful Life. Mm-hmm. Uh, Frank Capra, Jimmy Stewart. And number one, the same as the number one on your list, White Christmas. Uh, so uh, how how do you feel about these movies? Where did you put them? So... Uh... For 10, I put The Little Drummer Boy by Rankin and Bass. Not my favorite, honestly. Uh, I get that it's sentimental to you. That's great. Uh, It's very sentimental to me. Nine is the Albert Finney Scrooge. Eight is a Charlie Brown Christmas. Seven is White Christmas. Six is It's a Wonderful Life. Five is Jingle All the Way. Uh, I do find that movie just absolutely hilarious. It's it's delightful. (laughs) Four is the Santa Claus, partially because it's perfect as a trilogy. I enjoy all three of the Santa Claus movies. Interesting. Um, three. Interesting. Three is the George C. Scott, A Christmas Carol. Two is Home Alone. And one is Elf, because that's the highest ranking from my list that you've got. Ah, um, interesting. Elf Not- is pretty close to being my all-time favorite Christmas movie, oh. honestly. I had to flip for it on my list. Uh, yeah. You have to see Klaus. Yeah. You absolutely yeah. have to this year. It's one of those things that 
it'll stay with you for a long time. It's, it's a great film just for being a great animated film. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There is, it's not that sickly sweet kind of Christmas thing that we were kind of bemoaning last week where, you know, you can be sappy or whatever. It does have sappy elements, but it's really a great personal growth story. I was really disappointed in both of us. I got to be honest uh, that Scrooged, the Bill Murray movie is not on either of our lists. Uh, So I got to (laughs) say, Megan and I tried to watch that a few years ago and it is unwatchable. It's pretty terrible, but for that reason, it should have been on the list. (laughs) Yeah. I love me some Bill Murray and it was, mm, it was remarkably unpleasant. You know, the whole point of Scrooge is that he's an unpleasant guy, but boy, his character in Scrooge, he is just a jerk. I don't even remember specifics. I just remember that Megan and I squirmed through like the first half hour of that movie and turned it off to do something else because we were just like, oh, this is not, this is no fun. Well, Marley was a talking skeleton, so that was one thing that yeah. was kind of off-putting. Um, I'm trying to look it up here right quick. I believe Scrooge came out like right around the same time that um, uh, Groundhog Day came out, so he's like playing the same character. Yeah, but I I like Groundhog Day, so I don't know what happened there. (laughs) I rewatched that recently and thought it was really funny, but uh, there's no accounting for taste, I guess. (laughs) No, not at all. Oh, man, Chris. Well, that was was a fun thought exercise to kind of go through those lists. Uh, Any closing thoughts before we uh, dive into our favorite Christmas soundtracks? No, no, I'm ready. There's a movie that you put kind of down low on the list that is number two on mine. So I'm I'm excited to get to that and (laughs) kind of lobby for it because it is a close personal favorite. I know that's an oxymoron, personal favorite, but I just used that phrase. I'm sorry. The grammarian police can put coal in my stocking, I guess. But uh, do you want to start off with number five, or do you have a uh, an honorable mention? Yeah, I do have an honorable mention, Chris. Um, both of us decided that we would have one of the same movie on our list, uh, which we'll get to here pretty shortly, honestly, since we're only doing top fives, and we can kind of talk about them a little bit more in depth. My honorable mention for this list is actually uh, Tim Burton's 1993 classic, uh, The Nightmare Before Christmas, which some people would argue isn't necessarily a Christmas movie and is more of a hybrid Halloween Christmas kind of bridge movie. Mm -hmm. The music for this film is phenomenal. Um, The music was pretty much written by Tim Burton and... uh, um, Danny Elfman. Danny Elfman. Thank you. I was like yeah, trying no, to grab his you. name out of the air. Uh, <laughs> and every time I think about him, I think of the uh, uh, Family Guy spoofs of him where oh, you yeah. know, they really don't like Danny Elfman. So every time Danny Elfman is featured, he dies somewhere violently. Uh-huh. Uh, but, you know, Elfman and Burton wrote the music for this, but it's based on a poem that Tim Burton wrote in 1982 while he was working as an animator for Walt Disney productions. So uh, it's just kind of an interesting come about that he created such a classic piece of animation after breaking away from Disney. There's no way Disney would have made this movie or anything like it even today, (laughs) uh, even under their Fox ownership. Uh, 
have you ever seen this or have you ever paid any attention to the music for this movie? So that it, it is my number five. Uh, and it's, it's a fairly, it's a movie that I've realized I really enjoyed fairly recently. It, it's only been the past couple of years. I, I've never been a huge fan of Tim Burton. Uh, some of his movies kind of his whole like dark and brooding, uh, aesthetic kind of bother me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, and actually this movie, I don't nightmare before Christmas. He did not direct. No, uh, it, it's his production company though. And it's got his, you know, yeah. his, his, well, it's his poem and it's his it. screenplay and it's his, yeah. You know, uh, yeah. I, think it, um, I think it's funny. Another Christmas staple is in this movie and I had never realized it until I was doing the research for this. Uh, Catherine O'Hara plays Sally uh, and Frankenstein's monster in this movie. So Kevin McAllister's no mother is, uh, is so Sally. Funny. I did not, I did not notice that. Um, and, and it's funny putting it at number five, it's going to sound like I'm uh, just complaining about it the whole time, but I don't, really like Danny Elfman's music that much either. <laughs> Most of the time I find it to be kind of, uh, melodramatic and campy. Uh, but this movie has real charm. Uh, I kind of agree that it's really only half a Christmas movie. I mean, Jack Skellington is kind of discovering Christmas. So there's a little bit of Scrooge and Jack Skellington in lives in Halloween town. Yeah. Um, but I, I I think that the magic trick that Danny Elfman pulls off is merging kind of the sounds and textures you think of with Christmas music with the kind of like spooky, like Halloween vibe. Uh, And so, uh, you know, when my wife and I watched it recently, um, well, recently during, you know, during October for Halloween or whatever, um, I really enjoyed it and found that I, I kind of wanted to stick it on this list because I think it's some of Danny Elfman's best work. And even just as a film score, it has a lot of merit. It's very exciting. It kind of ebbs and flows in the moody parts. It's very moody when it's, you know, when Jack Skellington is discovering Christmas and delivering presents and stuff, it's very like energetic and, mm-hmm. you know, really cooks. And so like, Maybe it's not as overtly Christmassy, but I think certainly as a music, like a film score, it's fantastic. So I kind of, I kind of fudged the rules a little bit to put it on my list. So a couple of things. First off, I need to go back and edit myself and say this movie was released by Disney. So I'm a square and I don't feel like editing that out. So yeah, (laughs) it was Disney uh, and it was made on a very shoestring budget. Uh, and returned a lot of money to Disney uh, to the point that they've tried to make a couple of sequels since then. Mm-hmm. The one thing that I think is really cool about this is when I think about Danny Elfman, I kind of agree his music is so, so in general, or his scoring is so, so in general. Did you know that he is actually the voice for Jack Skellington when singing? So yeah. anytime Jack yeah. sings, that's Danny. And the fact that you hear his voice and he actually can sing is kind of one of those things that has always kind of been interesting to me. Uh, most people you think of, especially like in his case, you don't really think of John Williams voice or you don't necessarily know John Williams voice 
Yeah. But this is a movie that I can tie to Danny Elfman's voice. And he's fun kind of to pick on uh, just because it's the popular thing to do in uh, popular music. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the film is great. The story is great. And the music is integral to that story in a way that a lot of movies uh, could learn from, I think. So it's why it made it on my list uh, at uh, number technically six for me. Yeah, um, that was your uh, your honorable mention and my number five. So what is so what is your it. number? What is your number five? We've already kind of killed it for me uh, since you admitted to never having watched this film. Um, <laughs> but tell me about it. Sell me on it. Let me know why I should watch this movie and pay attention to the soundtrack. So Klaus is, first off, it's not really a musical. So it's probably bad that it's on my list from that aspect. But it is very musical in nature. It's got a phenomenal score. It is... I believe the score is almost two hours long to it. If you go listen to it as the like film's original soundtrack or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the whole action of the film takes place to some form of music. Uh, in it's basic synopsis. It's about a rich kid who is the son of essentially the, the King postmaster general of some country. And he has been leeching off of his father for forever. And his father basically bans him to the farthest away post office in the entire known world. And he can't come home and live off of, you know, his father's wealth. It's very much a, um, uh, you know, a wealth to rags to wealth again, kind of story where Mm -hmm. all he needs Mm -hmm. to do is go mail 6,000 letters from this little post office that hasn't carried one letter in the last five years. And he can Mm -hmm. come home and live in the lap of luxury because he proved that he could do something. Um, It was directed by, it was all done in Spain by Spanish animators uh, and released in 2019. And it was directed by Sergio Pablos uh, in his first full length feature. But before that he had done a few, um, like Disney shorts and a couple of other things. Uh, but he solely produced it himself. He went out and he started creating this film on his own. Uh, it was co-written by Zach Lewis. It's traditionally animated. Jason Swartzman is the character, the main character's voice. JK Simmons plays Klaus and Rashida Jones and Will Sasso are also in it as townspeople and common characters. Oh, wow. Got um, a fantastic guest. The the uh, old postman kind of character, uh, rest in peace, is Norm Macdonald, who's one of my favorite oh, comedians, man. and he's the yeah. like the boatman who gets oh, him to so and from great. the island, and it's great because he just is making fun of him. The music for this film is amazing, and it basically follows this kid trying to convince people to send letters and he basically invents Santa Claus, uh, trying to get kids to send letters and buy stamps. And it's all him manipulating the system and trying to make things happen so he can go home until he falls in love with the little town and the kids. And then the grumpy old man who lives on the Hill who makes all the toys that they're then giving away. Phenomenal film. Oh, that's excellent. Um, the uh, I'm trying to pull it up right quick to see. Uh, you looking up the composer? Yes, thank you. 
His name is I I I IMDb'd him because I figured we were going to talk about this. Alfonso G. Aguilar. He's from uh, Madrid, which makes mm-hmm. sense. It was a Spanish film, um, and I think this is his first big internationally seen. It's his sort first of thing. feature film. Period. Yeah, yeah. He's done a lot of uh, music. I think for shorts or looks like maybe like a documentary or two or something like that. Um, but yeah, I think this is his big break. I, I'm excited to listen to it. This is and quickly, watch the movie. This has quickly become Tiffany and I's like favorite Christmas Eve movie to watch together. Um, usually I wrap up Christmas Eve by watching Die Hard while I'm frantically baking dessert for Christmas dinner or whatever. <laughs> but we I sit down it. together and we watch Klaus uh, and it's just a phenomenal from the first frame to the last frame. It is just art. The music is so instrumental to the story. Uh, and I haven't even told you half of the stuff that happens in the story. Like it's amazing. Uh, all the different side stories and the side plots and the things that come together to make it just what it is. And what's so great about it um, is that it has a very international, it's not very, it's not a Marocentric or American focused. It's a very world focused film that doesn't mm-hmm. really, it's a little bit different than anything you and I would watch normally and think, Oh, that's a great film. Uh, and it still manages to be a great film without being focused on making sure we understand everything that happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. So we both have the next film on our list. Uh, my four and your number four. So why don't you take the lead on this one and I'll jump in, uh, since we're so, basically so far, we're right there together. <laughs> I know it. I know it. Um, so number four for both of us is the soundtrack to, um, uh, I think people our age probably consider it a classic. Maybe not so much. It's a John Hughes movie in it's our a lives. Classic. Yeah, um, and that's Home Alone. John Williams could score a toothpaste commercial, and it would be some of the best music uh, out there. Uh, this this theme, the theme music specifically, reminds me a lot of Harry Potter. You know, he scored the first. Mm-hmm. You know, he wrote basically the music that we think of as Harry Potter, you know, the, you've got children's choirs and glockenspiels and kind of a mysterious little musical figure that sort of colors the whole thing, especially when uh, there are any shenanigans happening uh, with the wet bandits, you know, they're whenever they're trying to scope out Kevin's house. Um, And it just, I don't know. John Williams is so good at, capturing whatever feeling he's going for. And I don't want to talk too much about him generally, but you know, if he's writing Indiana Jones, it, you know, you know, it's this big adventurous brass fanfare that sounds like all the Saturday morning serials that George Lucas was inspired by when he made Indiana Jones, when he's doing, uh, star Wars, it's this big space opera, you know, this grandiloquent, expansive phrases with a lot of brass and kind of sweeping strings. And so with home alone, he does a good job of the the music really captures kind of the like magic of Christmas. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he also, I don't know. He just captures so many things from that film. Kevin's sort of mischievousness 
and his like naivete as a little kid. And, you know, whenever his mom, uh, is looking, you know, misty eyed into the camera being sad about her son being across the Atlantic ocean, you know, stuck in their house, you know, there, the music really does kind of sell Mm -hmm. the feeling of like, Oh, this poor kid he's you know, all alone. And then when you get back to the kid and he's running when he's a brat, yeah. (laughs) When he's, when he's being a brat or, you know, torturing these two schmucks who are trying to, uh, you know, rob him blind. Uh, the music is appropriately, you know, bouncy and ridiculous. It's really it. It half the fun of that movie for my money is the music, mm-hmm. and I think you probably feel kind of the same way. Yeah, and not to derail the talk about this, but Christopher Columbus or Chris Columbus is the man who directed this film. Uh, John Hughes wrote mm-hmm. it. Columbus originally wanted. Um, uh, Bruce Broughton to compose the music for this album. And hmm. some of the original movie posters and trailers uh, mentioned that Bruce Broughton was the composer for it. And for some unknown reason, he uh, had to drop out. But I just thought it was interesting. Uh, Broughton is the guy who he scored a ton of TV stuff. Uh, he did the, te- the theme for uh, Seth MacFarlane's new show, The, the Orville. Uh, he's did all the scoring for tombstone, which is one of the greatest Western films ever. Mm. Uh, and he, uh, the year that this movie came out, 1990, he did the rescuers down under, which is one of my favorite Disney scores. No kidding. <laughs> if we were doing favorite Disney scores, that might be uh, on my list. That's so funny. Uh, but so it's kind of interesting to see, you know, you kind of get an idea of his style of music versus John Williams style. And, I don't think this would have been the same movie without John Williams influence. Like, Oh, absolutely not. It wouldn't have been as good. eh, Yeah. Well, I, I mean, not to throw shade on Bruce Broden who uh, coincidentally, I think did the music for the uh, remake of miracle on 34th street. Um, So he's got Christmas chops. We know that I'm just, I'm just saying it's hard to go up against John Williams and, it's hard to win. go against John Williams. Don't get me wrong. Art shouldn't art shouldn't be a competition, but John Williams wins in my book. He does, but is he not just a little bit overrated at times? No, no, he's Whatever. not in my opinion. I my opinion doesn't count for beans. Nobody paid for this episode of this podcast, but for my money anyway. But also, <laughs> would you have to remember? I'm a trumpet player at heart. <laughs> And it was like most of his music is like the brass gets to do everything. And occasionally the like glockenspiel player gets to like play the mystery theme and that's it. Yeah. Well, and so let's be honest too. Uh, Williams did get nominated for best original score, the Academy award for best original score and did not end up getting it, but he did carry really? a lot of weight for, yeah. this, for this movie. For this he was movie. nominated. Yep. What one? Hold on. We, we got to derail the podcast best original so score for John Williams nominated. Uh, and yeah, so John Barry won it in 1990, but that doesn't take away from the fact that John Williams was nominated literally eight times in the 1990s for best original score. So the guy had a lot of staying power. Him and uh, Alan Menken were up there right at the top uh, throughout the entire decade. 
Yeah, he's definitely got nothing to be ashamed of. I mean, <laughs> he uh, he may have lost the battle, but I think ultimately he won the war uh, musically. There you go. All right, so let's go to. Do you want to do, do my do number, number three? three? Yeah, my number three. Okay. Uh, so my number three is the uh, inimitable White Christmas. Um, we talked last Christmas episode about how much we loved Bing Crosby's voice, and I it it goes beyond just a good voice. I think I have always loved, you know, I grew up listening to jazz. And so when you combine Christmas, my favorite holiday with jazz, one of my absolute favorite kinds of music and mash it together with comedy, you know, with, with Danny Kay. And then of course, Rosemary Clooney's beautiful, beautiful voice. Um, man, this, this soundtrack ticks all the boxes for me. Um, I, much like yourself, am a sucker for a great musical. And this is just a fantastic musical. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, and all of it, um, I'm not going to say that anybody could sing along and sound as good as Bing Crosby, but I sing the words to almost all of these songs in that musical every single year. Uh, and so it, it Number it's at number three out of five, which I almost feel like is a little too low, but the stuff that I have above it, um, is just that much closer to my heart, if that makes any sense. Um, but it's, it's just fantastic. And, and, you know, it's, some of the songs aren't really about music. Some of them are just like big showbiz tunes or what have you. Um, but, Man, if if you're talking about music that I hear at Christmas time frequently, the the soundtrack to White Christmas, all those songs are just some of my absolute favorite tunes. It really is a a generational, just one of the best things that came out of the '60s, let alone uh, in music period. So I agree. It's it's a fabulous score. It's a fabulous musical, and it really cannot be beat. Uh, it probably should have been on my list, but I knew it was going to be pretty high up your list and I wasn't going to just go, Oh, by the way, we have another one. So <laughs> it's like, all right. Uh, but yeah, no great pick. And, and I want to, uh, something I want to highlight is that beyond just being good songs, musically, there are some really enjoyable moments. Um, there's the bit where Danny Kay and his love interest, who I'm going to look up because I never remember her name and I feel bad. Um, Danny, Danny Kay and uh, Vera Ellen mm-hmm. have a dance number out in that club in Miami that, um, that Danny Kay and Bing Crosby kind of go to to check out the Haynes sisters. And they have that dance number mm-hmm. out on the docks. And the there's a a bit where they uh they do some sort of it's almost they're almost like river dance moves and it's Vera Ellen doing all the dancing because Danny Kay is a decent dancer but he's mainly the funny guy mm-hmm. and there's some brass stings that line up with the cadence of her tap routine that are just super cool so like musically in addition to you know really memorable melodies and beautiful moments in the film. The music, uh, to to coin a phrase, the kids 
are using the music slaps like <laughs> that you know these are these are bangers if you will um and and i just love it it's just excellent and let me look up lest we forget um well i was gonna look up the composer irving berlin duh irving berlin <laughs> well he was the he wrote he wrote white christmas but i didn't know whether he had done all the music and the arranging i'm pretty sure he did the, uh, yeah so uh the music director was joseph j lily vocal arranger joseph j lily um but all songs were written by irving berlin yeah including the title song and it won uh, the Oscar for uh, best original song. Oh, another Oscar winner! You and I are suck. We're we We're are suckers the for the Oscars. Girl. Yeah, the Oscar bait. When they when they are making Oscar bait, you and I are the first people to pick up on that scent. I guess. Um, well, that's my number three. What is your number three? Uh, so for me, my number three is. Uh, it has not aged well. I'm going to be honest. I rewatched it last year for the first time in quite a while. And that is the Polar Express, which came out at the very beginning of motion capture CGI mm-hmm. when the whole movie is 100% motion capture and the technology was not ready for that. So a lot of people make fun of the dead eyes. I mean, it's so. It's, I'm going to throw out a hot take here and say that Megan and I have watched this almost every year since we've been married. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't get the uncanny Valley vibes. I don't know if that means I'm like some sort of weird subhuman so, monster, but I, so I, I acknowledge the them. I acknowledge them, but I don't recognize them. I'm yeah. with you. It's like, okay, okay I I'm, can see how I'm you glad. see that. And then I'm like, nah, I'm good. I'm going to keep watching this because I love this film. I, it's charming. I, uh, you said 99% of the movie is um, like motion capture or whatever. 99% of the movie is Tom Hanks, which I think is why I like it. <laughs> because he plays the patron saint like of a, cinematography. Yeah, if he could just be 75% of all movies, all movies would benefit from that, I think. Um yeah, I'm glad you put this on here. The music is, it has more of that like kind of schmaltzy Christmas magic. Oh, it's very much a Christmas magic film. And I, so first off, let me say this movie is directed by probably my favorite director and that's Robert Zemeckis. Mm-hmm. Uh, the man is an underutilized talent in Hollywood. And so having this as, you know, he hadn't done anything in a while that I was aware of when this came out in 2004 uh, and it's just such a great film. I believe. Um, yeah. It stars Daryl Savannah, Nana Gay and Jimmy Bennett and Eddie Deason as the core figures around Tom Hanks, who plays like 57 characters in it or something crazy. Yeah. yeah. He um, really, I would, did he get a separate check for being all the royalties those for all those characters? Yeah. Uh, I hope so. The music is by uh, Alan uh, Silvestri. Mm -hmm. And uh, Alan is really an interesting story. Uh, His first credit was uh, on the TV show Chips in the 70s and 80s. Really? That's fantastic. (laughs) uh, But he and and Robert Zemeckis got together in 1983-ish when they did uh, Romancing the Stone, which is another classic uh, film, if you've never watched it. Uh, it's phenomenal. 
and then they did the Back to the Future trilogy, Who Framed Robert Rabbit, Roger Rabbit, Forrest Gump, Cast Away, uh, A Christmas Carol, Flight, The Walk. I mean, they've been all over the place. Or he's yeah, been all over yeah. the place. He uh he's written quite a bit. Um, but his his writing on this film uh has a very fun sort of like Broadway sensibility to it. Like the main theme of the Pole Express always gets stuck in my head this time of year because it's got that really bouncy, like kind of oompa sort of bass line and really just cooks. But there are a lot of really fun tracks. I can't remember where I read it, but somewhere in the last 10 or 15 years, I've read that this was actually originally meant to be a stage play when he was writing the music for it. Like they were making it as a Broadway adaptation of Mm. a book from 1985. And uh, he was working on it independently. Uh, Silvestri was working on it independently of Robert Zemeckis and Zemeckis was working on trying to turn it into a film and Zemeckis got funding for it and adopted the music that Silvestri had been working on independently for his film. So it does have Broadway sensibilities because that's what it was originally meant to be. That's too funny. Uh, that makes total sense. So is it? Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say it really does. Uh, all the, all the numbers, especially the, um, the hot chocolate mm-hmm. track, the one where they're bring, wheeling out all the hot chocolate. It's like very big band. Well, and even, you know. so it's got the big band thing and then it's got all the choreography that you would expect in a Broadway play. It's not just, you know, showing somebody drinking hot chocolate or running around with a hot chocolate. You've got all the backup dancers and the backup mm-hmm. singers doing everything. I mean, it looks like a Broadway adaptation to a film. Uh, yeah. Just people, kind of in itself. I, I think when people obsess over the uncanny Valley aspect of the visuals of that movie, they really disregard all the other fun stuff. This has less to do with the score, but like, when they get to the North pole and the kids are kind of stuck in Santa's workshop because they've like snuck off. Mm-hmm. Like there are a lot of really interesting visuals, the giant pile of presents, the sort of steampunk atmosphere of, you know, the like vacuum tubes that the elves ride around in to get from place to place. Um, but yeah, I, I'm glad that you put this movie on your list because it's a a movie I had actually forgotten about the score to until we were talking about it. And I saw it on your list. (laughs) Oh, glad he mentioned that because it's very, and, and the one thing I want to add and then I'll shut up about it uh, is he does a really good job of um, creating music to go along with the kind of crisis of faith Mm -hmm. that uh, Tom Hanks's character has. It sounds so silly to talk about that in the context of this Christmas movie. Um, but you know, there's, there are some mm, struggling for the word, some sort of melancholy bits of music, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when he, he, you know, when the child, when Tom Hanks, cause I don't remember the kid's name, but when Tom Hanks is sort of wrestling with, is there a Santa or not a Santa? Uh, the music does a really good job of like kind of selling that conflict in the middle of this otherwise pretty pleasant Christmas movie for children. Yeah. Well, I think that that's one of the things that makes it have such staying power too, is 
it's relatable to adults as well. You know, we've all kind of had those thoughts or those feelings at some point or another, and we've come out on the other side of them some way or another. And so it's still kind of is poignant to us all these years later. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about your number three or sorry, your number two. We've done your number three. Yeah. So my number two is a film that I have watched every year. My dad's side of the family loves this film. And that is the 1970 musical version of Scrooge or not Scrooge. Um, uh, a Christmas Carol starring Albert Finney. Uh, and if for no other reason than composing the tune, thank you very much. This guy deserves um, all the credit. Uh, the composer's name is uh, Leslie Bricuse. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's scored, he scored quite a few things it looks like. Um, he's got quite a prolific career, um, scoring all sorts of things, films, TV shows, that kind of thing. Uh, but man, it, the, and, and I'm not sure who to credit with the lyrics to the songs. Cause this is of course another musical. Um, but they are just fantastic. There's a, a specific song that, uh, we, once again, my family is big on singing along with whatever musical we happen to be watching and there's a song. I don't know what the name of it is. Cause I always see it in the context of this musical, uh, that Scrooge sings as he makes his way through the market pulling, Please you know, tell me it's, I hate people. Yes, it is absolutely <laughs> that. And we sing along with almost every word of that song. It's a little tough to sing along to because the lyrics are, you have to be a pretty nimble singer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, Bricuse uses all of his like $15 words. Um, let's see if I can find uh, a good, I mean, it, the whole, the whole song is this way scavengers and sycophants and flatterers and fools, Pharisees and parasites and hypocrites and ghouls, calculating swindlers, prevaricating frauds, perpetrating evil as they roam the earth and hordes. Like it, it's just the writing in that, film is just impeccable um it's just so fun and and it's always it, it is always one of the things i look forward to most about family get-togethers at christmas and i discovered when megan and i met that her and her dad also love this movie and watch it every year and sing along with it so it, it's it it's kind of entrenched in my picture of what christmas what Christmas time should hold every year. And so if this film isn't in it, it it wasn't a good Christmas and it's, it's definitely because of the music. So one thing I love about this, the movie title actually is Scrooge. It's not a Christmas Carol. Uh, I, I, I said that it was based on Scrooge and I realized I had, I had mixed all the elements up. Uh, So the thing that I really love about this film is this is a British adaptation of a Christmas Carol. So it was filmed in England. It was produced totally in England. Uh, Albert Finney is an amazing British stage and musical actor and seeing him in this film was great, but 
the thing that I've always thought is just absolutely awesome is Jacob Marley is played by Alec Guinness. Yes. And yes. it's so funny seeing him in a supporting role because everybody thinks of Alex Guinness, Alec Guinness as just the man. And yeah. he brings he the is. thunder in this movie. He is he is really funny. Um, one of my favorite bits in this film is he beckons Scrooge over to sit next to him mm-hmm. and he like uses ghost magic to pull up a chair <laughs> and then just sits down on nothing. It's yeah. and it's a good movie gag too. Like it's a good special effects thing. Uh, but that actually the scene where he flies out the window with Scrooge in tow scared the daylights out of me when I was a kid. Like I, I could not look at the screen when he was flying over London and there were a bunch of, you know, and now you look at it and it's still a little creepy, but you can, you can see the seams on the masks and that kind of thing. But, um, it is aged wonderfully. Yeah, it really has. It's really excellent. And the music, I mean, the music is the thing about that movie aside from Albert Finney being a fantastic actor. (laughs) All right. So my number two, um, kind of to move us along here a little bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, we've already talked about it a little bit and that is Will Ferrell's 2003 Christmas classic elf. Oh yes. (sighs) I'm so glad that you put this John Favreau doing John Favreau things. Just what it is to be excellent. Yeah. Um, so let's get into something here. I, I do want to go back to something you said earlier, and that is this is the only film you feel like Will Ferrell isn't being weird. Can you expound on that a little bit? No, no. I, what I, what I was trying to say was that with this, I remember when seeing ads for this film, I saw this it was in coming out like third, five yeah. times <laughs> and, and I saw it in theaters too. And I remember seeing ads for it thinking, Oh, this is just going to be, another raunchy like adult sort of bad Santa affair where Will Ferrell is being naughty and dirty. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I think we either saw it in theaters or we might've just rented it because we were curious and we loved it instantly. And it's because I feel like Will Ferrell, there was every reason to believe that Will Ferrell was just going to be gross about it. Mm-hmm. And instead, I feel like he's really pretty genuine and somehow he does a good job of not being like a weird man-child pervert. And instead, he's just like a goof, like just a country bumpkin goof, basically from, you know, middle of nowhere, North Pole. Mm -hmm. And, And that's what I mean. He's for sure weird in this movie and every other movie he's in. But I... I think part of why this movie works for me is that he plays it so perfectly until, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't ever cross the line into being gross. So my dad is going to be disappointed if he ever listens to this episode, because my dad absolutely hates Will Ferrell. (laughs) Cannot stand him. Doesn't think he's funny at all. And I have loved Will Ferrell since he was on second city and then SNL and oh man, just he's so Will Ferrell is probably my favorite comedic actor hands down. Uh, Robin Williams would have been before him, but now it's kind of will is my guy. Mm-hmm. And um, I almost 
with one or two exceptions, I like every film that he's ever been in. But this movie, Elf, is just the perfect storm for me. Uh, we talked last week about the fact that I really like things that are original. And for me to find value in something Christmas related, it needs to not be a remake. And this mm-hmm. this is a movie, It's it came out about the time as Jim Carrey's, you know, The Grinch Who Stole Christmas, which is a remake but was a really, really good remake. I like it better than I like the original Grinch classic film. Uh, But this movie is really original. John Favreau directed it. David uh, Burnenbaum uh, wrote it, which he's an amazing uh, screenwriter. You've got James Caan, Zoe Deschanel, Mary Steenburgen, Daniel Tay, Bob Newhart, and Ed Asner in this movie. Like... (laughs) the amount of acting chops they pulled in to this film on a $33 million budget and grossed over $220 million off of that. It has a lot of heart. It's a lot of fun. The, uh, the, the music is by John Debney, which he's done a lot of the, I guess more hallmark kind of, music over the years he's done some of the cheesier disney stuff uh but uh his he won an academy award for mel gibson's the passion of the christ he scored that oh wow but but other than that his stuff his filming or his movies have been a lot more comedic in nature but this movie and the soundtrack that it has really does a great job of capturing the spirit of christmas i really like the fact that when an actor is singing in this film, it's actually the actor singing. Um, yeah. It was this film that I really fell in love with uh, Zoe Deschanel's voice. Mm-hmm. And um, she's recorded a bunch of other stuff since this came out and it's all just fabulous. Yeah. Uh, she's part of she and him. Yes. Thank you. With, with, with another one of my absolute favorite uh, musicians M Ward, mm-hmm. which I'm kind of surprised I, I haven't put an M Ward album on a regular list, but yeah, Zoe Deschanel is fantastic, and, and in this movie, her voice is just perfect for every every time she ste- sings. You brought up uh, Mary Steenburgen, and mm-hmm. uh, her singing voice is terrible, and I love it. Uh, it's genuine the, though yeah i know that's what i'm saying at the end of the film when they're all singing um santa claus is coming to town and she starts singing and it's so squeaky and bad and she i feel like the embarrassment on her face is actually her and not her character because she's really reaching for it with some of those notes and it's so funny one of my uh, favorite things about this movie is some of the stuff you learn about it after the fact. This movie's been in the news recently because Will Ferrell turned down a really bad script that would have been Elf 2 uh, oh, and turned down God. like $30 million because oh, that it was not good. So sad. But when you look at kind of the history of the production of this film, this was a long time coming. Uh, it was originally written in 1993 for Chris Farley or Jim Carrey in the role of Buddy. Wow. Uh, and Strange. it underwent a bunch of rewrites. Uh, Adam McKay and Re- Will Ferrell did a rewrite of it in the mid nineties that eventually got turned into a musical, uh, a stage mm-hmm. musical, uh, which came out in 2010. 
eventually. Uh, Gary Shandling was offered the role of Walter Hobbs at one point in time. Wanda oh man, Sykes, that would have been funny. Wanda Sykes was cast as the Gimbal's manager, but dropped out. Uh, Favreau came on to direct it and said the script was way too dark. It was close to being an R-rated film. And so when Will Ferrell signed on, he, Adam McKay, and Will Ferrell got together and decided they were going to make a PG movie. And so they lightened it up and found places to find it. Uh, This was Will Ferrell's first post-SNL movie. And he wanted to make something PG-rated that he could show his kids because he couldn't show them SNL even. (laughs) No. (laughs) Unfortunately, no. And he realized that this was his opportunity to make a film, make Buddy's World a homage to Rankin and Bass films of the past. So that was his mindset, and he captured it perfectly. Oh, man. Uh, You know, John John Favreau... Ever since Iron Man has been one of those people that I'm like, you just make all the movies that you want and I'll go to them. His best uh, movie is Chef, which was an indie film he produced with like see, no I need money. To see that one. It is I know. So and good. I've heard nothing but good things it's, about it. It's on Netflix, uh, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it was no, that wasn't produced for Netflix. He's just no. done stuff. Yeah for Netflix since then. Uh, but I, I want to touch because we've talked a lot about how good the movie is because the movie is really good. Uh, but the music, like, I mean, it sounds kind of dumb and obvious to say, but the score really captures the main character really well. Like mm-hmm. the main theme of that film, the kind of, like dorky a boy lost thing. finding his dad yeah, exactly you're a mad um, elf and it, <laughs> if you describe this on paper it sounds ridiculous that will ferrell discovering that james can is his father and like going after it is somehow a genuine heartwarming film is crazy but i think a lot of what sells it is the music i mean with any good film that's that's what you're going to say about it um but one of the things one of the things in this film that cracked me up that is a musical joke is when buddy is crossing the street to go to gimbals <laughs> and the music is just plowing ahead and he gets struck by a taxi. I think the first time I saw that movie, I laughed until I cried uh, because the like stunt is so funny. His body goes like flipping up over the cab and then like falling back down the ground. But what makes that is the music that the music just like comes to a complete stop. And then he pops back up and apologizes to the cab driver for getting hit by his cab and then walks on the gimbals. But you know, that, that kind of thing, somebody paid attention, whether it was the composer or, mm-hmm. you know, the musical supervisor or whatever. Cause there's a lot of great, just incidental, not incidental music, but music that wasn't composed for the film either, you know, that is just part of it. That is really good. So we may cut this. We'll, we'll talk about this after we finish rapping, but one of my like anti-woke favorite Christmas songs is baby. It's cold outside. And that song was included in this film kind of as an afterthought, Zoe Deschanel was not supposed to sing at all in this movie, uh, except one day while warming oh, hey. up. Exactly. Yeah. 
One day while That's warming so up. <laughs> one day while warming Well, John Favreau, first of all, didn't know she was a singer. So uh, she, her character was written as kind of just this straight character, you know, love interest kind of thing for, for Buddy. And one day while they were setting lights and getting ready to film uh, the scene where Buddy meets Santa in Gimbals for the first time and falls apart, uh, she was just sitting there humming and she started singing that song because it was cold outside the day they were filming. Uh-huh. And uh, Favreau was like, that, that, we need some of that. And that got put in the movie, uh, and it, albeit in a different sequence. But the fact that that just kind of came about, and it's one of the moments in this movie that's kind of, it really cements the relationship between the Buddy character and Zoe Deschanel's character uh, and gives them... It's- chemistry like that's the moment it is is a fantastic part of that movie that's another bit of physical comedy is when she like peers out of the (laughs) curtain of the shower and like screams at him and then he gets frightened and embarrassed and like slams into a locker (laughs) and falls down like runs yeah bounces off oh it's so good yeah no that's it's a fan and that I feel like that song I read somewhere that that song is less. It's kind of less problematic than people think it is just because it was more about, you know, it was, it was some sort of critique and I don't remember, I'm not going to try and rehash the article I read, but it was basically in a similar way that people misunderstood uh, Randy Newman's short people. Mm-hmm, yeah. People have listened to that song and kind of misunderstood the way it's supposed they, to be. And I mean, no shade if you don't it like the it, lens but. of right now, which is one of the problems, yeah. you know, you have to understand some context uh-huh. um, yeah. and intent more than just the face value of the lyrics. You read them off a sheet and you go, Ooh, yeah. But, but in the in the context of the movie, it's perfect. Oh man, it's funny. It's and so good. The fact that it, it wasn't even in the script and it just got added in because John Favreau was and, flexible enough to be like, "That's what this movie's missing." And and thank goodness that Will Will Ferrell has just enough singing chops to be have able heard, to keep up with. Uh, with have Zoe you heard Dishon some now. of his real singing? Like he's actually yes. a really talented singer. He did a. There was a a radio, uh, like a some sort of dinner thing for people who work for a radio station or something where he sings leather and lace with <laughs> Dave Grohl. They do a duet of, you know, the like Stevie Nicks, Don Henley yeah. duet. And it, he does a really good job. It's really funny. Uh, one last thing I want to talk about Elf before we move on. Um, this movie grossed over $220 million worldwide. It opened on November 7th of 2003. Uh, on a budget of $33 million. So it more than recouped its money in its opening week. It finished second to the matrix revolutions. It's second week. It finished at the top of the box office and it beat probably my favorite film and favorite all around soundtrack of all time, which was master and commander, the far side of the world. Ooh. Oh um, man, that's a fantastic. Film. It gets Two so much radically hate, different so watches good. though. Oh yeah. It's like during the holidays, are you going to go see a really long historical epic with Russell Crowe or Will Ferrell? It's not that long. It's only two hours and 15 minutes long. 
it's it's a slower paced movie. Okay. I love the movie. Don't get me wrong, but one of these movies moves along, and the other one is a little bit more contemplative. Let's so, say. So, a uh, funny story. Since we're on that note, uh, a few episodes ago, it's probably been about ten episodes ago. We talked about my penchant for buying a movie ticket and then staying at the movie theater all day. Uh, mm-hmm. I can guarantee you, I saw Elfin Theaters five times which means I saw master and commander in theaters five times Yeah, uh, the same day. <laughs> yes. Yes. Hey, you know, uh, nobody's we're, we're past statute of limitations on that. There aren't any movie police coming, coming out. Sorry, after you. mom. Oh. <laughs> um, All right. So uh, do you want to do your number one or do you want me to do my number one? What are we going to do next here? Your number one is, probably where we need to finish so let's go ahead and do mine um because everybody will probably agree that your number one should be the number one i don't know i i love your number one go ahead and talk about it because i'm excited about this one too for me my all-time favorite christmas soundtrack and all-time favorite adaptation of this story is 1992's the muppet christmas carol first off so good so good Michael Caine is Scrooge. This movie is perfect just with that, let alone the fact that it has the Muppets and Kermit uh, the Frog. Uh, and it's just such a phenomenal film. And this is one, uh, this came out in 92. Like I said, I was four when this came out. My parents did not take us to see it in theaters because that wasn't really in the cards in the early 90s. But I remember mm-hmm. when this came out on VHS tape and they bought it. And my brothers and I wore this thing out uh, a couple of times. Oh, we, we did too. And, and watched For it sure. year round. It and the Muppet Treasure Island. Uh, I oh mean, man. those See, two that was, together. We, there was no way we were going to watch a Christmas movie year round. Like we love Christmas, but that was the, the VHS would have gotten chucked into the bin if we had done that. That's so funny. So we were talking before uh, we started recording tonight. One of the traditions that I really want to do with Maverick is read him the Christmas Carol every year, kind of like I grew up doing uh, with my family. And that kind of feeds into this film. You know, when we finished watching or finished reading the book, we would watch this film and it's kind of dumb to call it a film, uh, I guess, because it's kind of a tongue in cheek adaptation but it's so great. It's so true. Like if Charles Dickens was alive to see what movies have been made about his work, I lo- I would love to think that he would love this adaptation uh, because it's just so pure uh, and not, it doesn't take itself seriously. You know, you say, you say pure as in the spirit of it is well-intentioned, but there was an NPR um, thing uh, a while ago, I think it's been a few years ago now, where they brought on a literary um, expert mm-hmm. to study all the adaptations there have been. And this one is technically plot point per plot point. And in the script, the words and the, the dialogue, the most faithful adaptation <laughs> of a Christmas carol. Like uh. if you want beat for beat what people say and the ideas expressed in it. This is still the one to go for it, let alone that it's hilarious and that the music is really excellent. Like the, uh, I, I don't know the name of the tune, but the main song, uh, 
you know, it's in the singing of a street corner. Yeah. Choir. You know, that tune, that is a great song. And the words are actually really good. Like if you're looking for a, a Christmas carol that kind of captures the sentiment and the meaning of Christmas, you can hardly do worse than that song. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's in a freaking Muppets movie. <laughs> it's so good. So Paul Williams wrote most of the score or, and Miles Goodman contributed, um, which they're common. They, those guys were all over the Muppet stuff. This is the first Muppet film produced after Jim Henson's death in 1990. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was directed and written by his son, Brian Henson. And it was actually produced for TV by for ABC. Uh, and then at the last minute, instead of being made for TV, became a theatrical release and all of that. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. That's fantastic. So it's one of those things that just, it is so great. I've watched this movie probably a hundred times. I'm not going to oh, lie. Man. I um, have to. I I can definitely. I, I'm glad this is your number one. It's it's one of the few times, like, as the Muppets have gone on, they haven't gotten the best voice actors to mm-hmm. play some of these people. Like, you hear Kermit speak now, and it's like some weird stranger with a frog puppet talking to you. Uh, but this, I would say, for my money, and this is probably our generation, for my money, this is Muppets heyday. Because oh, yeah. I also watched Muppets uh, Treasure Island. Mm-hmm. Uh, which has another British national uh, treasure in it. Um, uh, but yeah, this, this, this one is fun. And it's, it's, it's got some of that Broadway musical sort of DNA where the music is real bouncy and lively. Like the, the Marley and Marley tune is always, you know, always a highlight and definitely seems like it could be a, its own like Broadway production music from this soundtrack almost made it onto my list last week in the best of Christmas music, uh, because it just is so great. What's, Mm. what's sad to look back on is you and I look at this movie fondly and society as a whole does. Um, this movie has a certified fresh rating on uh, rotten tomatoes, uh, 76% based on 49 reviews in the audience score of, uh, an a plus. So audiences loved this. Just they were audiences like me who were home audiences and not theatrical audiences. Mm -hmm. This movie was a flop for Disney uh, and almost ended Disney's partnership with the the Henson studios. That's Uh, crazy. It had a $27.3 million budget and grossed less than $6 million over its entire theatrical run. I did not realize this was such a, a bomb it wasn't, in the box office. So it wasn't released to VHS tape until 1994. And on VHS, it made over $100 million in its first year. Wow. So it was a great That's home so release, funny. but its theatrical release just about terminated a, uh, Disney and ABC's relationship with them. Uh, so yeah, thankfully it sold a lot of VHS copies and they're like, okay, we'll let you make Muppet treasure Island, which came out this, in 95 or six, whenever it did. Oh, this is, this is the Shawshank redemption of Muppet movies Yes, where exactly. it tanks. And then everybody's like, Hey, wait a minute. We really liked that. Go to blockbuster and pick up a copy. It's Christmas. We want something to watch. But yeah, so that's my number one. I absolutely love it. Um, Michael Caine, Stephen McIntosh, 
uh, Meredith Braun, Robin Weaver, and Jessica Fox. I mean, just to name a few of the people who appear on screen alongside all the Muppets. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we can't go on without talking about Frank Oz and his ability to just master a puppet. Like the guy is phenomenal throughout this film. You, you can listen to, this is slightly tangential, but um, I forget if it was Johnny Carson or somebody, but a lot of people I think have marveled people who have interacted with the Muppets Mm -hmm. have, have kind of marveled at how it really does feel like you're having a conversation with a puppet, a talking frog or a bear with a hat that does stand up or, you know, like it's, it's, it's incredible to me. It's one of my favorite modes of humor is the Muppets. And when you combine it with Christmas and really good Christmas music, it's just kind of an unbeatable formula in my opinion. I mean, obviously you and I have that opinion, you know, absolutely very similar memories of, wearing this VHS out <laughs> during the Christmas season. Oh yes, for sure, man. Well, that was my number one. We need to talk about the number one overall film from your list or film soundtrack from your list. I got to be honest. It barely even made my top 10. So <laughs> it's kind of interesting to see. I'm, I'm interested to see what you have to say. So tell me what it is and sell it to me. So my favorite Christmas soundtrack of all time is the soundtrack to a Charlie Brown Christmas. Uh, I mentioned when we were talking about white Christmas that I love jazz. Uh, My dad and my pop and my uncle all love jazz. I grew up listening to it and the, the arrangements that uh, Vince, Vince Giraldi, Mm-hmm. Uh, came up with for AKA all these Dr. Funk, <laughs> um, you know, all of his arrangement jazz arrangements of Christmas songs are just impeccable to me. The, the meeting of the really um, kind of more complex jazz harmonies mated with, Christmas songs that I've heard, you know, hundreds upon hundreds of times before is something that is really, really special to me. But beyond that, the content of the movie, I have always really loved um, because it, it does such a good job of talking about the meaning of Christmas and, and, you know, this might differ for, you know, our listeners, depending on what their religious affiliation is, whether they have one or not. Um, but the movie is a really good expression of the true meaning of Christmas when it comes to the birth of Jesus and, um, what that means for those of us that, you know, have those beliefs. Um, Charlie kind of, uh, or Charlie Brown kind of embodies the like struggles that all of us have with becoming focused on, you know, the trappings and stuff. And he even laments, like there's a moment where he walks by his dog's dog house by Snoopy's dog house. And it's all done up with lights and stuff. And he's just crestfallen that his dog even has fallen into this, you know, materialistic sort of, 
lights and Christmas decorations contests. Um, but I think, I think the music does a good, a good job of kind of pushing this special along where it's slow. I think a lot of people sort of poo poo this special now because it is a little simple and it does wear its ideals on its sleeve. Um, but just, I think by dint of being made when it was, um, Vince Giraldi just adds the perfect sort of bop touch to regular old Christmas music. Um, and I've always really enjoyed that. And on top of that, like he's just a really great pianist to hear him solo over some of the, uh, changes and reharmonizations of something like, Oh, Christmas tree. Um, or, you know, um, hark the herald angels sing, uh, all, all these tunes. I think it's just really satisfying to listen to, um, on top of the content being what it is. And that's, that's kind of my pitch. I don't know if I made a very good impassioned speech for a Christmas special that I think a lot of people sort of pass on as being a little old fashioned, but I just love it. And it's another one that I grew up watching and that Megan and I watch every year at Christmas time because it's our absolute favorite. So that's my number one. It definitely has had a ton of staying power. I'll say that much. Um, you know, I didn't realize it until kind of the, the run ended, if you will. But this broadcast on, I believe, ABC was the original network. No, sorry. CBS was the original network. And it broadcasted somewhere during the Christmas season every year from 1965 to the year 2000. And mm. then... It got picked up by ABC and it broadcast from 2001 to 2019, somewhere in the Christmas season. And uh, it left the the big three networks and it went to PBS starting in 2020. And so I remember a lot of noise being made about the fact that it was the end of an era that, you know, primetime TV had given up on, you know, the, the Peanuts Christmas uh, film or whatever you want to call it, the special. Yeah. Uh, the music is great. Vince Giraldi is amazing. He's one of those uh, musicians that died way too young. I think he was, he was in his mid to late forties. I think it was mm-hmm. and you know, practically died on stage performing or some, some close approximation to that. Mm. Uh, phenomenal musician though. And he was, I believe he also did the Peanuts Christmas or uh, Thanksgiving, right? Like, isn't yeah, he the same yeah. guy? He, he scored. He scored pretty much all the Peanuts okay. stuff while he while he was alive. I think. I got gotcha. you um, because you hear stuff after his passing and like at like after seventy six or whenever he stopped doing it. There's a, a second Christmas special that is absolutely horrendous. All the voice actors are wrong, and the music is like. It's it's like if the people who did uh, Schoolhouse Rock mm-hmm. stopped being good at what they did but kept making music. Oh, so like the people it's, from Schoolhouse Rock now. Yeah, exactly. Like started doing like really bad 70s versions of Linus and Lucy and all that. You know, it, it's awful because we 
we, so Megan and I bought the DVD when we were first married because we didn't own anything because mm-hmm. we had just gotten married. Um, and they kind of hide the fact that the second special is also on the DVD. <laughs> like it's not on the box, but it's on the DVD menu. And we started watching it and got 10 or 15 minutes in. And I, it was bad. It, it, it's like, it's like you walk into your house on from being gone on vacation and you've left something weird in your trash can or your sink and mm-hmm. it smells bad. Like that was that was the reaction we had to the really bad Peanuts Christmas special part and do. This was just like, what is this? This is not right. Um, one of the things that I not to blame. <laughs> one of the things that I really like about this film, just kind of one of the trivia things that jumped out to me. Uh, Giraldi wrote uh, a bunch of new music for this, but two of the big ones were skating and Christmas time is here that he wrote, which both of them are kind of jazzy, but they're a little bit of a departure from what I would think of as Vince Giraldi's work. And uh, uh, Mendelssohn, uh, I'm drawing a blank on his first name at the moment, but Mendelssohn, was out there trying to find a lyricist to put lyrics to these songs that Giraldi had written and could not find anybody. So about 15 minutes before they recorded the the lyrics or the voices for these, uh, Mendelssohn wrote the lyrics for both of these songs or for Christmas time is here for sure on the back of an envelope that he had a parking ticket in. Uh, oh, that's and fantastic. that's what they recorded from. <laughs> So oh, thank great. you city of Los Angeles for the parking ticket <laughs> <laughs> without the city of Los Angeles parking, you parking know, authority, parking lady, the meter maids, <laughs> we would not have the Christmas classic we have today. Oh, no, it's a great, it's a great pick. Uh, it's just one of those that kind of, to your point earlier, it's not one of those films that I think of every time I think of Christmas. It's not the first one to mind, but it is a great film and it is, you know, Schultz is a phenomenal storyteller and peanuts is probably the most American of American storylines. Linus and Lucy and Snoopy and all of them just, it is Christmas. It is Thanksgiving. It is the holidays. So I think it's a great pick. Well, thanks man. Well, we, uh, we got through another five, hopefully not as long as our last Christmas episode was uh, a little bit shorter this time. Good, good. We, tr- we managed to trim it down. We we kept it to five instead of ten, which I think helps a little bit. Before we go and you know get back to uh, wrapping presents and getting in the Christmas spirit, eating too many cookies, uh, it's time for us to go see what the Oracle has for us next week in our Christmas saga. Well, uh, the Oracle actually has some PTO to burn through uh, because it is the holiday season. So she is on vacation. So uh, as they say, well, the cat's away, the mice will play. So uh, what are we going to do next for uh, next week for our our Christmas extravaganza? So last week we did uh, secular Christmas music. This week coming up next week, I really want to do uh, Christmas carols and like the Christmas music you would find in like a church hymnal. So what's your Absolutely. favorite Christmas, you know, tune and let's, let's see where we go from that, uh, from that perspective. Sounds great. All you church of Christ kids 
get out your get out your hymnals. Get the little the Baptists use the hymnals too. Come on, <laughs> I know, but I I grew up Church of Christ, so I'm I'm used to like the guy <laughs> with the pitch pipe waving his hand around behind the pulpit singing. I grew up Church of Christ too, so it was only when we went to my grandparents' Southern Baptist church that we got to see the sacrilege that was a piano in church. <gasps> a piano, exactly, a grand piano. <laughs> oh so, man, that's Christmas that's for you. Funny. Oh, well, let's wrap this one up and send the people on their way. Folks, thank you so much for listening. I hope you've been enjoying our show and especially this departure from our normal cadence, uh, focusing on the holidays. It is the most wonderful time of the year, a time for family and for being thankful for the things we have. Uh, We would be grateful if you would like and comment on our show, rate and review it, uh, and we will uh, read those comments on the air as they come in. Chris, it's all you. Yeah. Uh, if you would like to get in touch with us, feel free to shoot us an email at two dudes and tunes at gmail.com. And don't forget to hit us up on Instagram or Facebook. I'm manning the ones and twos over there. And I, uh, will respond because I have nothing better to do usually. Um, but, you know, hit us up. Tell us what your favorite Christmas films are, what your favorite Christmas film soundtracks are. And don't forget to tune in next week where Wood and I discuss our favorite Christmas carols. Merry Christmas, you guys. Take care. One, two, three. Deck the halls with bows of honey. la 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 la.